Today, we're talking to Mike Berners-Lee, climate change expert and author, to find out how we should be thinking about values for money, not necessarily just value for money. Welcome to the 12th episode of VFM, The Pensions Podcast. I'm delighted to be joined, as ever, by my co-host, Mr. Question Time himself, Darren Philp. Darren, did you enjoy the DG Publishing Impact and Responsible Investment Summit yesterday? Yeah, it was a great event. Um, we, were at, uh, we were at London Zoo and we had um, some fantastic discussions, um, some very sobering sessions, I'd have to say. And I think it um, sets up today's discussion very nicely. And it's, um, it's 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 great that we've um I think we've hit our twelfth episode as you said Nico, and it's great to be doing this with you. Fantastic. So today uh, we're speaking to Mike Berners Lee. Mike, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Um, so Mike, you I've I've got your your blurb. Uh, so you consult, think, write, and research on sustainability. Uh, and responding to 21st century problems. You've set up uh, Small World Consulting Limited and you've written three books. So There's No Planet B, uh, How Bad Are Bananas and The Burning Question. Um, you're a professor at Lancaster, Lancaster University where you're uh, researching uh, supply chain carbon modeling, sustainable food systems and environmental impact of ICT. You're a speaker, broadcaster, you've got, you've got it all, Mike. Welcome. Thank you. That's a pretty Very impressive CV. <laughs> it's a, pr a pretty impressive CV, that, Mike. Well, it's, it's bits and bobs all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's great. We don't like to play off our guests one against one another, do we? But, <laughs> no, definitely uh, I think not. the most impressive CV we've had so far. It's pretty good, isn't it? Um, so <laughs> it's great you could join us, Mike. Thanks very much for spending the time. Um, and as always with these podcasts, um, we're going to start with the news. And um, as you're our guest, you get to go first, Mike. So what have you got for us? Well, I suppose one piece of news is that the IPCC came out with its uh, synthesis report, its latest report, and uh, telling us that it's a kind of a final warning to the world. In a way, there was nothing new in it because it was a synthesis of other reports that have, that have come out before. But uh, in a way, it was just, um, you know, what, what I found chilling about it was that it sort of hit the headlines in the evening. It was the almost the front headline of the BBC, IPCC says mm. final warning for the world. And then by nine o'clock the next morning, it had really faded right off the bottom of the, uh, uh, the bottom of all the news websites, maybe the 10th uh, item, and then, and then it was gone for good. And that, that, that was it, really. Final warning to the world. Mm. We noticed for a few minutes, and then we just, uh, we just carry on business as usual on our accelerated path. Um, towards uh, a polycrisis. Mm. So, so the report essentially says very, very difficult to achieve 1.5 degrees, um, but you could if you acted now. Um, you know, two degrees is maybe more realistic, but still tough. Um, I, I think one of the more interesting bits, and as you say, this has all been said before, so this is a sort of summary of a bunch of summaries and thousands and thousands of pages of, of work that, that kind of come up to this um, these reports. But but essentially, you know, the target for developed countries has to be sooner than 2050. Um, uh, and, you know, the people who are going to suffer the worst effects of climate change are the ones who have contributed the least to it, right? Um, yeah. So lots of interesting pieces in there. Yeah, I mean, let's just, just to summarise the summary. I mean, so we're, <laughs> if we want a 50% chance of staying within 1.5 degrees, and just, just to be really clear, um, you know, the science is telling us that we really don't want to play around with going above 1.5 degrees. Um, you know, beyond that, the risks of all sorts of things that we don't fully understand start getting nastier and nastier. But to have a look at what it would look like to, to stay within a 50% chance of 1.5 degrees. Well, at the moment, we're burning through the remaining carbon budget at a rate of about 0.9% per 
per month. Uh, so that's just, you know, we're heading to, I said we're accelerating towards a polycrisis. I mean, that's the speed at which we're doing it at the moment. Uh, and actually, every year, our emissions, it's not just that we're not yet getting to the point of, uh, of cutting our emissions down to zero. Every year, our emissions are actually higher than they were the year before. So if you if you look at the carbon curve over the last 60 years, um, you know, emissions per year curve, you know, it's not it's not it's not really a curve at all. It's a rising straight line. Mm. You could put a ruler through it and you'd find three little dents in that line. One for the dissolution of the Soviet Union, one for the financial crisis of 2008 and one for the pandemic. Yeah. Um, but it, we always bounce back from it. And you honestly, you can't see any evidence whatsoever from that line that humans have noticed that climate change could be something we should be thinking about. I mean, it's absolutely mm. astonishing. So the, you know, the speed and the extent to which we need to raise our game is just uh, enormous. So, um, Mike, can I ask, a, it might be quite a basic question, um, but we hang a lot off this 1.5 degree number. Um, and, you know, what does the science say about you know, the, the, the impact of 1.5, like, should we be actually targeting below 1.5 um, to, to avoid some of the, you know, potential disastrous consequences of um, the, the planet warming? Well, it's, you know, we, we talk about these numbers as if there's some sort of hard cutoff that we know happens at a, at mm. a particular, at a particular sort of round number like 1.5. But this is what, this is what really happens. So you know, back in the 90s, uh, a load of scientists for the IPCC sat down together to try and estimate various kinds of risks um, associated with climate change. And they developed this kind of graphic of five bars representing five different categories of, of risks and a colour scheme where uh, um, you know, you know, red represented very high risk and white represented will be okay and there were some yellows in between. And they sort of drew a line at two degrees because at two degrees you could just sort of say that all the red was was above the line and uh, it was mainly sort of yellow and white below the line. So the two degrees was this kind of really just a judgment call um, from scientists on the level of risk and it was kind of two degrees will be acceptable. Well the same scientists came back to the same process about 10 years later around the time of the Copenhagen uh, COP and with that, um, sorry, with, with better data uh, and better modelling, but the same basic process. And what they found there was that two degrees was looking a, a lot riskier uh, than we had thought. Um, and then the same scientists with better modelling again and better data came back to the same question around 2018 and said, oh my goodness, it's, it's looking even, even worse again. And actually 1.5 degrees looks riskier than we thought two degrees used to look back in back in the um, back in the, just before the year 2000 and so that's how the 1.5 degree target came about um, and in fact in their graphics they had to invent a brand new purple color to 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 um, to represent really 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 risky and so you know but the truth of it is we don't know for sure uh, what the impacts of 1.5 degrees are we don't know about um, cascading tipping points. So this is something that the scientific yeah. community is just starting to really talk about loudly, is that we don't understand the extent to which when the Earth warms a bit and methane starts boiling out of the melting permafrost in Siberia, leaving craters up to 50 metres across, releasing a very powerful greenhouse gas, we don't know the extent to which that warming precipitates more ice to melt, which makes the Earth less reflective so it absorbs more heat so it gets warmer so the forests dry out even more so they become more likely to catch fire and when they catch fire that's more carbon dioxide and all these are positive reinforcing feedback loops and we don't we, we simply don't know the extent to which um, they reinforce each other and the point at which we might um, trigger uh, a catastrophic step change in other words reach a point at which even if we cut our emissions to nothing we've already triggered a process yep. that's going to lead to a step change in the climate and all we do know is that we're really really playing with fire 
And the best judgment calls are that it looks likely that if we took very, very strong action now, we can probably, broadly speaking, get away with it on climate and, and only have kind of symptoms that are you know, quite a bit worse than the ones we're getting at the moment, but not necessarily devastating for humanity. But you know, we just, we're just, um, you know, we're throwing the dice in a way that the reality is we don't fully understand, but we know it's getting incredibly risky and the, the potential consequences are very nasty indeed. What a, what a wake-up call. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a really clear explanation, Mike. Um, and I think our listeners will really sort of appreciate that sort of candour and clarity in terms of setting out um, what some of the issues are. I suppose my, my one follow-up question, and we'll, we'll come on to other items of the news at the moment, is that, you know, as as data and as modelling improves and stuff, you know, will, will the scientists come back and, I don't know, in five years' time, um, um, and, and then think, well, actually, we're even one... One degree rise is, um, you know, that's not looking too comfortable either. Well, we've we've had the one degree, right? <laughs> We're somewhere between one one point one and one point two. Yeah. Um, at the moment, and you're right, we don't yet know. I mean, that you know, methane is exploding out of the melting permafrost, and mm. we don't yet know whether if we stopped all emissions right now, which of course is impossible. But you know, we don't even know whether that process in itself wouldn't be enough to continue uh, a rising temperature change. But we do know that realistically, you know, all the, any scenario you can think of, even if the whole world was suddenly saying, right, right, this is an emergency, all the global leaders of the world came together and said, how can we stop the fossil fuel coming out of the ground? You know, even, if, even if that were to happen, um, you know, there'd still be uh, quite a bit more fossil fuel to be burned just just because we can't instantly trans we can't instantly um, uh, transform the whole energy system mm. yeah I mean for me you know obviously we're a we're a, a DC pensions podcast um, you know I, I I think about insurance companies and solvency too so solvency two means that you have to essentially put assets on your own balance sheet. Um, to uh, face down some pretty big risks. Um, and they say that's a sort of one in 200 year type risk event. So, so an insurance company has to think about half a percent probability as being the kind of threshold of, of, of where it needs to start putting or stop putting money aside. But we're playing 50-50, you know, toin, coin toss type probability um, you know, even if we manage to do one and a half degrees of warming and, and kind of constrain ourselves to that, we'd still be at a coin toss level of probability. And I just don't understand how, you know, people like the PRA, uh, so the Prudential Regulatory Authority, can be forcing banks and insurance companies to worry about such extreme risks and then run this kind of coin toss with, with climate change and fossil fuels. Um, I just think there's a really interesting kind of like comparison there. And I, I just don't know how we as a society permit that. Well, uh, you know, the big phenomenon in all this, the fascinating phenomenon is, is the way the human brain responds to it. Mm. And, you know, even really smart people are very capable of um, not being able to stick with the logic of the analysis and kind of you know run with the argument over this you know if if we did we'd, we'd all be massively on the case over climate but actually you know most of us the vast majority of us just find it too uncomfortable it's too challenging to uh, the sort of conventional ways in which we think day-to-day um, -day life is just a lot more comfortable if you mm. ignore it and that's what we do and even even when we get our heads around it it's hard to hold on to the concepts because you know you you, you grasp a concept that we're you know we're heading for this poly poly crisis um, but then you turn on the news or you read the paper or whatever and everything you read is gonna be just you know um, pushing you to forget about it because mm. you know the rest of the world just carries on as, as normal. And even if you turn tune into Radio Four and there's a big scary item on on, on a climate crisis, the next item is very likely to be uh, just sort of carrying on as though 
as though the previous item hadn't happened. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a scary old world. I mean, there. there so, so I guess it, there is some sort of good news or good um, balance to this in the AR six. Um, and and you know it's sort of worth touching on some of those things. Um, maybe not all of this is good news, but it's just sort of good positioning, right? So so you know the sense that um, we have the processes, the political processes in place to deal with climate change, um, but you know we actually need to press the buttons that we've kind of created. Um, I, th I think that's a really important one to highlight. Um, the second one. And, and and it's so we are cynical about that, Mike, and we're rightly so. But but you know there are the mechanisms. If if we are facing this like in the height of the Cold War, or you know at other times in human history, then we probably wouldn't have had the discussion. Um, so you know who knows. Um, well, but the other one <laughs> I, I think is really interesting. Let, I'll, I'll let you come back to that in a second. Yeah, Mike. The other one that's really interesting is this sense that there is no kind of point where you get to give up. So you can put these lines in the sand at two degrees and it's right that we brought that forward to one and a half. And, you know, by the way, we should say there's no safe degree of, of anthropogenic, you know, human initiated climate, uh, global warming. Um, but if you pass two degrees or if your projections looks like you were going to, you still would be better off at two degrees than three degrees and better off at three degrees than four degrees. Um, and there's a message in there, which is like, you, you have to keep fighting. We have to keep however difficult the politics and that human nature point is we are protecting something by still fighting for even if we get to god uh, you know four or five degrees the terrible futures that we face will be slightly less terrible than six seven degrees right um so i think i just want to make that point i don't, I don't know if that makes me an optimist to focus on that one mike <laughs> well it tells us that we're gonna have to we're gonna have to deal with issue this issue at some point or another, yeah. right? So it's like, you know, we can put it off, but we'll never make it go away. So it's a bit like, you know, I don't know, letters that come through the post that you can't be bothered to deal with that, you know, or, <laughs> you know, it's that kind of, you know, no, no. Yeah, we yeah. actually can't put it off forever. You know, if, I, if I was going to be optimistic, um, you know, about the situation we're in, we're in I would say the, the really good news is that from a science and technology perspective, there's no reason why we can't deal with this. You know, we absolutely, you know, we have pretty well, at our fingertips all the technology for the energy transition that, that we need for example and, and the same with the food and land system um and it's absolutely not a hair shirt there's no reason why this needs to be a quality of life hit in fact if we get it right it's absolutely an opportunity for raising the quality of life whilst we live more sustainably i mean that's that's the kind of good news on it in terms of have we got the political processes in place I really think we have to be honest about that one because, you know, the processes that are coming out of the IPCC, so uh, the IPPC rather, uh, the, if you, and we talk about the NDCs, right, the, uh, you know, national um, decarbonisation commitments. Well, there's an assumption often made that if you, you add up that the, the, the benefit you'll get at the global level will be the sum of all those NDCs. And that's actually not the way the dynamics of climate change work. The dynamics of it works is that if you try and just squeeze the kind of carbon balloon in a few places, in a few, in a few, mm. con a few countries or a few businesses or a few people try and do the right thing. Unfortunately, you create a tendency for the carbon emissions in the rest of the world to expand and fill the space. So I actually don't think that we've got it at the moment in place the processes that are required um, uh, to make the transition that we need. Somehow we need to interrupt the dynamics of climate change at the global system level. Uh, mm. And you know what's coming out of the out, out of the the cops. I mean we've had twenty seven cops now, and we are still not talking explicitly about the need to leave the fossil fuel in the ground and stop it coming out of the ground. I mean, and how absurd is that? Because you haven't got to, you haven't got to look at the problem um, all that hard for all that long to come to the very clear conclusion that that is absolutely essential. But one way or another, you know, we've had some very sophisticated, very well-funded lobbying from the fossil fuel industry, extremely cynical. 
And one way of looking at it is you could say, you know, they will, broadly speaking, they allow the world's policymakers to say and do anything they like as long as it won't actually be capable of reducing the rate at which the fossil fuel is dug out of the ground and sold. That's where, that's where we're currently at. Hmm. I'm sure we're going to come back to this. Let's, uh, <laughs> well, not least in our next news item, because I think, Darren, you wanted to talk about something sort of not, not exactly the same, but related. Yeah, so obviously, um, you know, how we fund the um, sort of green transition and how we allocate capital is going to be a really important part of um, the solution on this. And um, I think it was yesterday, um, the 23rd of March, where the pensions regulator um, published some stuff um, on um, TCFD uh, reporting, um, just to remind people that this came into effect uh, for larger schemes from the 1st of October 2021. And I think this um, was the regulator reviewing um, the documents um, to see, um, you know, what worked, what doesn't, um, and just to sort of feedback to the industry to, 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 to get them better for next time. Um, just a couple of points to highlight. Um, I think they analysed 71 reports, and of those 71 reports, 43 had a formal net zero target. So there's still um, a way to go there um, within the industry to sort of adopt net zero. Um, but these schemes represented about 450 billion of assets and more than eight, 18 million memberships. So still, still a long way to go, um, but, but, but but sort of progress in the in the right direction. Um, you know, I do. Uh, I think people would need to sort of read the report to go into detail. But um, I do like the fact that the regulator also reminded trustees that you know when the statutory guidance says must, you know, it's a requirement imposed by law, and you must do it. And when um, the guidance says should, you know, trustees should follow that approach. So um, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's, it, to my mind, it's just quite amusing that um, you know we're, we're we're talking about sort of huge um, existential threats and um, then tying ourselves up in knots whether you know the legal definition of guidance is must or should. Um, but anyway. <laughs> Yeah, so um, one of my one of my work uh, pieces of work, obviously, uh, I've been talking about it on this show. Is uh, I've been working with the Defined Contribution Investment Forum to uh, first off interview um, across the defined contribution industry about progress to TCFD, um, and second off, uh, I, I'm just starting to read TCFD reports from all the master trusts. And one of my questions is that net zero question. Um, but yeah, so so um, we've got the launch event on Tuesday, and we've got Brendan Walsh, who I'm sure I haven't seen the report itself, although um, Jenny Rowe from the regulator sent it to me this morning. Um, I, I believe Brendan will be, uh, I'm sure, one of the main uh, lead authors of that report, um, and we've got him on stage on on, on Tuesday. Um, one of the really interesting pieces of the interview for me was scenarios. So I don't know if that I. I Darren, you told me ahead of the, this recording that it was unfair to me to ask you questions about what that report said, but um, I will be interested to read it to see essentially what the regulator says about scenario analysis, yeah. um, because there was this moment of kind of, you know, we think about the Bank of England as this sort of uh, raised eyebrow or kind of look over the glasses regulator, but I think TPR has got a bit of that as well. And um, yeah, you know, Brendan kind of raised his eyebrow and uh, said, you know, if you if you're looking at these scenarios and you're looking out to 2050 and you think it's going to have basis points impact on your funds, you've probably not thought very deeply about these scenarios. Yeah. Um, and you know, a four degree warming world out that out that distance um, will have a very very dramatic impact on on kind of member pension outcomes. Um, which, of course, is a very narrow and a slightly debilitating kind of frame to think about, you know, the destruction of the natural environment yeah. and, yeah. Uh, and risks the human existence. So, um, yeah, I'll be really interested to see what they what they say about scenarios. Yeah, um, I think they, they, they did sort of mention that um, the sort of depth and the disclosure around some of the scenario analysis and the, the metrics were not always sort of detailed enough or provided at the appropriate level. Um, so I think they do sort of recognise that there's more work to do in that space. And Mike, have you looked at scenarios at all? Have you? Is that kind of part of your your consulting work? Uh, I occasionally look at food scenarios, uh, what, it, <laughs> what it would take to feed the world. Uh, that's about the only scenario analysis that I get 
I get uh, really involved in. So there is a very uh, divisive climate model, the Nordhaus model. Uh, it's not a climate model, an economic model based off of climate change, um, which essentially estimates the impacts of whatever degree of warming you want by looking at GDP of countries by uh, latitude. Uh, yeah. And essentially hypothecating that as you warm the world, that our nations move further towards the equator um, and therefore potentially growing. Um, so <laughs> it has this ludicrous model uh, and it has enabled a lot of people to go, you know, 2100 sea level rise, temperatures at three, four degrees above, you know, pre-industrial, that would be absolutely fine. We, we know this is a kind of parking fine level of damage to the economy, which will have trebled three times over overnight over the next uh, 80 years. Um, and therefore, you know, the damage is very, very minor. Um, so there is, there's quite a lot of danger coming from economics, I think. Yeah, I think as, you know, just a, a broad take on this whole scenario uh, approach is that you know if only we understood what would cause what um, enough to mm. be able to draw anything from these scenario scenarios they you know they're always so limited in the dimensions that they look at so I think you know if we really do experience I've, I've used this word poly a poly crisis that we're heading towards mm -hmm. so you know what we've got is we've got a climate situation going on We've also got, just as importantly, just as seriously, but we don't talk about it anything like as much, a biodiversity crisis going on. We've also got all sorts of things happening with pollutants and uh, disease threats and goodness knows what. But inescapably linked to all of that, we've got economics and politics and um, cultural stuff happening. And, you know, if humanity were to ever... Uh, ever to come up against a really hard time from all of this it might not even look like the effects of climate change to most people i mean this is the mm. frustrating thing you know the climate scientists aren't even probably going to be able to get to say i told you so because <laughs> it might just look like a war right it yeah. might look like you know biodiversity and climate between them have produced you know enough pressure on the food system uh, and you know, made life difficult enough for big enough populations around the world that, that migration gets to be a bigger and bigger deal and that starts uh, opening up all sorts of political problems in all sorts of countries. We're already beginning to see all this and global stability starts breaking down and then it's a war and suddenly in a war nobody's caring about climate change or biodiversity. They're just trying to not get... Um, they're just trying to defend their land or, you know, whatever. And there's no scenario planning that I can think of that can do anything like a decent job of trying to work out whether or not, you know, that kind of stuff is going to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I'm, I'm very, you know, so the, the, the difficulty of forecasting from here, and let's say the hubris of trying to forecast as opposed to just dealing with it. Um, you know, there's this sort of madness, right, which is, uh, there's a whole bunch of people jumping out the window and trying to predict when they're going to hit the ground. It's like, no, just, just maybe stay on that side of the window, the right side of the window. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, it's, it's hard enough to, to kind of forecast in this complex world. Uh, it's actually hard enough to try and work out why things happened in the past tense as well. Yeah. Um, I remember going back, God, a decade or so when the Syrian crisis, the Syrian civil war started, and there was in the kind of climate science community a discussion around there was a long i think it was the three four-year drought in in syria which essentially pushed um i can't remember which way around the the the, the muslim minorities are in 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 in, uh, in um, syria but essentially pushed farmers of different ethnic background into cities which made these powder kegs around the whole of uh, you know, the, the, the Syrian desert, which then kicked off into a massive civil war and obviously the crackdown and the discussion that, that you know, we followed, uh, unfortunately, for, for years since. So this kind of, that kickoff, that spark, okay, you know, there's, there's simmering tensions in those countries already, but that sense that this kind of long drought would, would, would be the spark that, that kind of lit the powder keg in Syria, um, and as soon as you saw those kind of reports and discussions coming out, 
all sorts of seemingly sensible people going, don't be silly, you know, that's, <laughs> this isn't a warning sign of anything at all. It's just, you know, those those Arabs think this way and, you know, you know, they blame it on a whole bunch of other kind of triggers as well, not least, of course, our invasion of Iraq and uh, unleashing other kind of um, uh, terrorist groups. So, you know, that sense that we're not even going to really be able to work out retrospectively what kicked off the, the the worst outcomes of the poly crisis i think is really interesting as well as a modeler right as a, someone who's you know i studied physics and i want to be able to tell what the future is based on the kind of present conditions um but you know that's not really how it works is it <laughs> no that's right it's it's far too multidisciplinary and complex and systemic um, I feel like I should t talk about my news, but uh, we should give it one second because I've got some very, it's very defined contribution pensions. <laughs> <my news. laughs> I'd expect nothing less, um, okay. Well, uh, I'm delighted to talk about climate change and sustainability, as you know, but um, uh, so I've got, I, I, maybe I'll just read out the headlines. Um, so um, there's a pensions age article, which was a survey. Over two thirds of companies expect pension schemes to offer ESG options. I read that and was very disappointed for the one third who don't. Um, well, the headline's and, the wrong way around, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it really is. Yeah. Um, you know, if I worked for one of those companies, um, you know, who's this? The fossil fuel majors? I don't know. Mm. Um, but But in 2023, um, that's that feels all out of all out of kilter with with kind of where we've got to get to. Um, I also picked out a headline: one third face drop in retirement standards. I think this is building on the DWP work that was published maybe a few weeks ago. Um, uh, spoiler alert: it gets much worse um, as auto enrolment and essentially defined contribution pensions start to dominate, yep. uh, and people just don't haven't got the savings. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, I read that and went, uh, we try not to swear on this, but uh, no, <laughs> no way, right? Um, and then that was professional pensions. Also in professional pensions, um, one in four agree that LTAFs will boost uh, DC investments. So Mike, for your benefit, LTAF is a long-term asset fund, um, which is an initiative the government had well, going back two, three years now. Um, we had the announcement last week of one being launched. Um, potentially, this is how pension schemes can start to address some of the need for capital to go towards climate change. Um, I think it's fair to say that uh, I'm a bit cynical. I think others that we've had on this program and, and Darren yourself were, were a bit cynical about yeah. this. Um, but maybe we're less cynical than the industry if, if three and four think this is pretty much useless. Um, so, uh, yeah, I was, I, was, I was interested to... Is always on pensions, uh, professional pensions. It's always on sort of on kind of a scant sample, so they normally get like sixty, seventy people kind of responding. So one in four is maybe like ten, fifteen people, maybe slightly more. Yeah. Um, but uh, be interesting to go and trace those down and, and try and work out where their optimism of this vehicle comes from. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. Nico, you always, um, you know, you always have to sort of uh, go beyond the brief, don't you? Because see, we always sort of talk <laughs> about having one news story, but you you just sort of squeezed free in there. Anyway, <laughs> well, Darren, you you always tell me that you're so busy that you can't prepare. So oh, I, I offered true. you these stories, but then you brought a much more interesting one. <laughs> I know, I know, must and should. Um, so, uh, so 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 so, Mike, how did you get into pensions, and how did you um, you know get into um, some of the work that you do? Well, I suppose. You know, I got into climate change because I was just an organization development consultant and I was doing strategy work for the environmental technology sector in the Northwest. And one of the things I found was that the environmental consultants didn't seem to be capable of selling in the change. They sort of had all these points to make, but they couldn't get anyone to take any notice of them. Mm -hmm. and, you know, eventually I decided, well, maybe I'd better, maybe I'd better try and do a bit better myself. And that got me into climate change and I thought well I won't do any carbon numbers I'll let the people who do carbon numbers do that and I'll just do the kind of change management stuff yeah and then I found out you just couldn't get the carbon numbers from anywhere so that got me into a whole load of carbon modeling and what's going on in supply chains and stuff like that and that's where how bad a bananas carbon footprint of everything came from the book but 
um, you know, it became clear that all that wasn't going to get anywhere unless we took took a proper big picture look at uh, the climate situation from a global systems perspective. So that's what the kind of the next book, The Burning Question, was all about. Yeah. But then, you know, it became inescapably clear that you couldn't deal with that. Uh, you couldn't deal with climate change at all, actually, sensibly, unless you see climate as one symptom of something much bigger that's going on for humanity. So when I talk about this poly crisis, it's like it's it's not just climate change. It's that we've suddenly become such a powerful species that we are suddenly so powerful that if we're not far more careful than we've ever had to be in our history, we just will smash the place up. We don't we don't um, we don't. It's not that we uh, have. You know, it's not that we'll smash the place up if we do something deliberately appalling like a nuclear war. It's that if we're not really, really careful, like we've never had to be before, we'll just find that the place gets smashed up. And in fact, most of the world smashing up that's ever gone on by humans has gone on in my in the course of my career. Actually, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's how that's how fast we. Uh, you know, that's how that's how kind of right now the situation is it really is a very critical few years so it's so so this sort of big picture look on what's the situation where climate change is just one symptom takes you into on the one hand you know to begin with a whole load of physical things that we need to deal with and they turn out to be technically solvable so that asks that begs the question well all right what would it take for us to be solving these technically solvable challenges and that takes us into questions about, you know, what about our economics might need a bit of a rethink now that we're in this new context of the Anthropocene, this era in which we're so powerful. And what about our politics might need a rethink? And what about the world of business? And what about the world of investment and so on? And so to finally answer your question, where did pensions come into it? Well, you know, one of the looking for what would it take for us to be solving these technically solvable challenges? Well, one angle on this that would be really really helpful is if we could get the trillions and trillions of dollars of investment to be pushing in the right direction and investing in the stuff that's actually going to be helpful instead of the stuff that's making things worse that would be enormously helpful and of course pensions is uh you know is, is, a, is a major form of investment and do you, and do you think um like the, the pensions industry is going um, far enough and fast enough to, to sort of help meet the challenge um, well, because there's a lot of talk about um, you know ESG and impact and all of that type of stuff um, yeah. but we spend more more time talking about some of the issues and some of the barriers to investment than we actually do um, just getting on and doing it yeah I mean I don't want to be just you know doom and gloom in everything I say but I think we do need to look at the reality of the situation I mean we're you know the world the world is absolutely miles away from being on the case on climate change at the moment and so it's unsurprising that the, the pension industry is equally miles away so when you when you talk about you know two-thirds of um, the people in your in your survey uh, or two-thirds of pension pension schemes expect, so employers yeah two-thirds yeah. of employers expect some form of a, of ESG in their pension scheme and one third aren't even asking for it. I mean, the next question is, well, what standard of ESG are they asking for? Because when I look at how ESG is routinely being assessed in the asset management industry, and, you know, it's suddenly all the buzzword over the last year or two has become the big thing. But, um, you know, the quality of that assessment is absolutely miles away from what is required. I mean, people are just buying spreadsheets off companies to give them ratings of, of different companies and so on. And you just you just you just can't do that. It's just, you know, that kind of trite reductionist approach just doesn't tell you anything about the extent to which a company is helping to deal with the climate crisis or yeah. not. Yeah. So when we, you know, in, in the work that we do for uh, in asset management, you know, if we're trying to assess for an asset manager, you know, is is this company helping to deal with the climate and ecological emergency? It requires a, a really holistic assessment. Yes, you need to look at what they're doing, about the, at their carbon emissions and what they're doing about them. But you also need to look at the goods and services that they offer and ask serious and 
you know, uh, quite deep questions about the extent to which those goods and services enable humanity to make the transition that we so urgently need, or the extent to which they're just wedding us to um, you know, an old way of doing things. And you need to look at everything that's in the narrative of that organization and everything that's in their supply chains and uh, even what's in their pension schemes. And you know, it needs to be an incredibly uh, holistic and inevitably um, partially subjective analysis. And it takes real humans you know, many days to do it anything like properly. Yeah. So the kind of you know, what's required from ESG uh, assessment is you know, there's there's no shortcutting it. If you if you shortcut it, you just can't do anything meaningful. I don't think. So you know, unsurprisingly, uh, the world of pension management is miles away from where it needs to be. But I do think that there's evidence that slowly but surely the public is actually starting to care more and more about this. And I do think that um, there is an increasing number of people who are just depressed by the fact that claims of ESG or sticking ethical as a word on a pension scheme or something, you know, doesn't mean anything. And I think mm. there is a yearning for anything that we might actually be able to trust that if we did lift up the bonnet and have a really good dig around underneath, we'd be happy uh, with what we found. And I think, you know, I don't, I don't know how big the market size is, but I'm confident that it's growing. I'm sure there's a gap for investments, including pensions, uh, that really are trusted to be uh, the kind of thing that people feel can feel good about. So that when you're drawing down your pension in your old age, not only do you have enough money for quality of life, but you can properly feel good about where that money's come from. Hmm. Is it, isn't this a sort of, is it, I mean, I'll come to a question, but there's a, there's a sort of sense that this is a least worst type world right so because maybe the question is like you know uh, does capitalism survive this um you know the, the the sense that we should be selfish and profit isn't that part of why we're destroying the world um i i'm really struck by how you know we we, we don't like tobacco in our portfolios um, and this is not about climate change we don't like tobacco because it's addictive and it, and it kills you um, but we're quite happy with gambling companies in our portfolios because they're addictive, but they don't kill you. They just ruin lives. So, you know, capitalism is great until, you know, somebody kind of puts on the front page or puts into parliament laws which say this is now basically immoral, if not illegal. Uh, so, you know, is it is it capitalism in the dark with climate change? Can can people actually make returns and kind of live in a sustainable world? Are those are those objectives kind of, can they really go hand in hand? Well, capitalism in its current form is clearly really, really unhelpful. And we've bought into this kind of narrative of um, human greed and, you know, greed is good. And the only, the only way in which humans have ever achieved anything is by harnessing that greed, the kind of great neoliberal narrative. And it's been, sh you know, supposedly shored up by bits of science, um, you know, um, Richard Dawkins and his selfish gene stuff uh, and so on. But actually, that, all that turns out to be wrong. Uh, Richard Dawkins mm. has eaten his words about the selfish genes. The genes that do best are the ones that are better at collaborating. And, you know, if you look at the, the if you look at the, the, the evidence in genetics and neuroscience and all sorts, you know, it turns out that human and, and, and social history, you know, it turns out that um, we're not hardwired to be selfish in the way that the neoliberals describe at all. It's just a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy that if we talk about ourselves that way, we become a bit more like that. Uh, but it's pretty clear cut that if to the extent that we operate in that way, we've had it, right? Because like it or not, there's 8 billion of us on this fragile planet and we will sink or swim together. And so we have to uh, cultivate some different characteristics in our culture, uh, including things like global empathy, uh, you know, caring about each other, being truthful with each other and so on and insisting on those values. And it's true that, you know, and, and the evidence is, the good, really good news is, 
and there's plenty of evidence that we are capable of cultivating whatever values we want through deliberate human effort. So I'm just saying this, you know, from a very pragmatic point of view, we need to get much, much better at having empathy for all the people and caring about all the people in the world. And we need to get much, much better at being truthful and insisting on really high standards of truth, because without those two qualities, we just we we can't go anywhere near dealing with these these issues. So where does capitalism stand in that? Well, a kind of greed is good type of capitalism in which each player is just out to get what it can for itself is clearly not capable of dealing uh, with global challenges that absolutely require global cooperation. And there's no way that you could kind of have that kind of capitalism, but somehow constrain it with regulation alone, because the complexity of it is just so huge that there'll always be ways of exploiting the loopholes or breaking the law or whatever. And the world is just will just be too fragile to deal with any of that. But that doesn't mean to me that we can't still have some form of market economy going on. But it needs to be one that's also got values running right through it. Mm. So that when there's a regulation, and we are going to need a ton of regulation, and when there's a regulation, if a company starts pushing the limits of that regulation to find the limit, to find the loopholes and do things that aren't in the spirit of it, they find that there's a cultural backlash and everybody reacts mm. against it. So it's, it's a mixture of culture and regulation that will get us through this, if we're going to keep markets as we know them. And Mike, do we have mm. the political systems, both sort of individual nations, but also sort of globally, to actually um, help address some of these challenges? Well, <laughs> we have little pockets of it. Um, no, globally, we don't. I mean, you haven't got to look around too far. I mean, if you want to, if you want to really... The most stark and depressing view of the challenge that I can think of is to say, well, look, we need to have this level of global cooperation, which means that we're going to need um, the president of Russia and China and the US mm -hmm. and all the European countries and all the rest of it actually sitting down cooperating with each other. Well, we're, we're so far away from all of that. Um, but you know, I've just come back for a couple of weeks ago. I was in I spent a week in Iceland talking to um, members of parliament and the prime minister and quite a few civil servants and, and, and so on, making the case that they could be the only country in the world, they could become the only country in the world to be properly on it, on the climate and ecological emergency. And they could be showing some proper global leadership. Uh, they've got, there are all sorts of reasons why the conditions are right, you know, are right in that country. And, some of that is to do with, I mean, obviously they've got geothermal power and they've got um, the potential for food independence and they're a rich country. But there are other things as well. They're also uh, the gap between the levels of inequality in Iceland are much, much lower than they are in mm. virtually any other European country. Uh, the level of participatory democracy is fantastic. Yeah. And the level of trust in that democracy is fantastic, you know, compared to the UK. And just being out there spending a week, I mean, there was just a sense that the platform is there to be able to take a proper, intelligent and participatory approach to these issues and work it all through intelligently in a way that we just can't do at the moment in the UK because we just, we just simply don't have sufficient levels of honesty and respect in our society. And um, we heard at the conference yesterday, um, Nico, I think you might have left by this point, but, um, you know, um, is it the OK Glacier um, in Iceland that um, sort of disappeared? I don't know if I pronounced that right, but, um, you know, so they're, they're, you know, they, as you say, Mike, they've got sort of the geothermal stuff. Um, you know, um, they, they've, they've got good conditions, you know, to, to drive some of this forward, but also they're bearing the brunt of some of this as well. Well, they sort of are and they aren't because um, the glaciers are melting. And so they that's for sure. And they can see that happening. Actually, weirdly, it's making the it's making their country, their sea levels going down, not up with climate change, because although the sea's rising, 
as the ice melts, it's taking the weight off the off the land, and it's actually making their it's actually making their their boats unable to get into their ports properly. Oh wow! Um, wow. But, <laughs> so it's weird, but um, yeah, uh, yeah, they can see the ice melting and so on. But you know, there's also you know the danger side to this is that there's a bit of a sort of sense of well, a bit of warmer weather could be nice out there mm -hmm. and there's also a bit of a sense of well the rest of the world might get in trouble over this but you know what we're a little island we're a bit detached from it all it's not really going to hit us too badly we've got our energy supplies we've got our potential to make our own food you know we'll be all right and i think that's that's one of the things that's holding them back so i actually went out there with a guy called george marshall who's you may have heard of he's very interesting on the psychology of climate change and what it takes to engage people on this and so we kind of had a two-pronged approach i was i was making the case for this is what it would look like to make a response to this agenda that is properly commensurate with the situation um if you could get the public support for it yeah. and he was out there saying this is what it would take to get the public engagement and the public support um, to enable you to do it. So we were kind of hoping that between us um, we'd get some traction and we wait to see. So um, I'm going to try and drag us back to the title of our, of our podcast, which is obviously Value for Money. Um, I think what I'm hearing, Mike, is, you know, values. Uh, and I'm not sure, I don't know, values for money, maybe that's one for Darren and I to consider. Um, but so is, is there a role for the the kind of pension fund trustees to be the kind of leader here? Um, you know, that kind of, I guess that, that sort of, uh, you know, more emotional, um, kind of more visible, kind of more committed, uh, kind of person in, in in front, you know, waving waving the flag, saying actually we should be not only pushing harder on on climate change and and biodiversity, but also you know treating each other better, right? Um, you know, reducing inequality yeah. in society. Um, you know, having investing in companies which don't just give the CEO hundreds of millions of quid, um, but also make sure that they look after their customers and that they look after their their staff. Um, is that is that kind of your message? I guess our listeners will all be in pensions. Do you think that's kind of our, our conclusions here? Yeah, that's absolutely right. We've we've somehow ended up in this situation where we're just routinely pursuing money as if it's the one thing that matters, and mm. it's just uh, you know stand back and look at what life's all about, and you know that's that's obviously not the right thing to be doing. And when it comes to all investments, really, we've got, I mean, this, I guess we're in the fiduciary duty question. This is, this has got to come up. Mm. So, you know, this idea that fiduciary duty and asset managers fiduciary duty is to maximize financial profit for the asset owner, uh, rather than maximizing value interpreted in a much wider way has, has got to change. So the idea of these, um, these state attorney generals sending their letter to BlackRock, telling them that they are legally obliged only to pursue, only to pursue financial profit. Um, you know, that, that battle over the definition of fiduciary duty has to be won on the side of fiduciary duty means looking after the environment and society and values beyond money as well. And we need to set up a, an environment in which asset managers feel are at risk of being sued for negligence if they are not seen to do a proper job of looking after mm. the environment and society. And so, you know, this is where I'm about to show my naivety and my ignorance of your industry. But as far as I've worked it out so far, it is really helpful for asset owners, including um, pension schemes, but even you know, end consumers of pension schemes, to send very clear messages that their understanding of fiduciary duty is 
much more than just money and includes the environment and society and looking after the world and future generations. And that is their expectation of their asset managers and they consider their asset managers to be negligent unless they are doing a proper job of managing all those things. And explicitly, they are prepared to have financial gains traded against those uh, against um, environmental mm. benefits uh, and social benefits. Um, because, and that's, as far as I can work out, incredibly helpful for asset managers who would deep down as human beings like to do the right thing, but don't, don't yet feel free to do so. And do we, mm. do, do, I don't know, this, this might be a question for you, Nico, um, but you know, do we need a change in the law to sort of really reinforce that point? Yeah, I mean, so going back to some of the selfish gene uh, kind of narrative, um, you know, that the, there was a confusion by reductionists as to where this thing called altruism came from. Um, and so why people aren't just selfish all the time. And that, I think, was kind of leapt upon by this kind of neoclassical school. Um, and then altruism uh, is a kind of survival to to a survival technology to go and defeat essentially free riders for the benefits of collective action, right? So um, it's it's it, the people who kind of pretend to have hunted the mammoth that should get the least share, the ones who actually risk their lives to go and do it, or uh, you know bring up the children, or do the gathering, or the men, all of those kind of things. Um, so altruism and this ability to kind of call out people who norm break uh, are survival technologies to stop free riders. And somehow in capitalism, you know, we've, it, particularly in America, it sounds like we've got laws that encourage free riders, that, that companies sit on the backs of the education system, the, you know, the, the ecosystem services in terms of giving us clean water and air. Um, you know, a society which kind of loves us if we're open to that um and uh you know curates our minds and then we kind of throw it into a factory treat it terribly give it as little money as possible and then kind of throw it out at 5 p.m so the, the 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 law in some way has to be the social technology that deals with the free rider problem um if we've if we've kind of shed a culture that does it so yeah i mean the sooner the better right i mean uh, the difficulty is that with since the Enlightenment, we've essentially said that morality comes from God, and um, you know we've tried to have secular atheistic societies. So we need a new moral code where we can all have different religions and have the same moral code, um, and maybe that's what stimulates the legislation, or maybe the legislation stimulates that moral code. But but yeah, I think it's really difficult to. It'd be really hard to change fiduciary duty and impose. You know a moral code that society hasn't in some way discussed um but maybe that's where you start um po possibly not with this government <laughs> no, no probably not probably they've not. got a few things on <laughs> and, and and this um uh, uh, maybe just sort of building on some of this discussion um and you know nico we were talking yesterday about um mm. you know government intervention and the need for a carbon tax um, Mike, um, you know, what is the one sort of short, uh, I, I know that you, we can't wave a magic wand and sort this stuff out. And I know that there's lots and lots of things that need to uh, be done in unison to sort of actually tackle um, the poly crisis, as you call it. Um, but, you know, what, what sort of short term action would you really like the government to take to sort of really make a difference? <laughs> yeah, OK. So, you know, at the sort of in terms of the simple mechanics of how do we get the fossil fuel left in the ground. Um, a carbon price, uh, ideally at the point of extraction, is by far the simplest way of doing it. And, you know, I said earlier that I thought that the fossil fuel lobby will allow policymakers to say and do anything they like as long as it won't be capable of leaving the fossil fuel in the ground. And the trouble with a, a carbon price is that it will actually work. And that's why we don't we don't really go near it <laughs> seriously um but so i would i would put in uh, a, a carbon price i would ratchet it up to be a pretty high level pretty quickly um uh and what would i do with the money i would use the money to do all kinds of things i would take everybody out of fuel and food poverty 
I would stimulate all the uh, industries that we absolutely need for the uh, sustainable economy. And, you know, combined with changing the whole subsidy scheme around land management so that we could manage all our land properly. And uh, I would make sure it's absolutely clear that this is how we position this carbon price, because people, you know, we've got this kind of cultural habit of saying, well, all, all tax is bad or tax makes you poorer. Mm. A carbon price won't make people poorer. A carbon price will make people richer because it will, because there's actually things you can do with that money to make people's lives better. I mean, you know, for a start, you could, you know, you could fund the first, the first part of their energy consumption and then, and then raise the price on the rest of it by a long way. I mean, without getting too far into the details, mm -hmm. the point is it's absolutely possible to do this as a means of eradicating food and energy poverty and stimulating the right parts of, uh, of industry and just incentivizing um, uh, incentivizing behavior towards a more sustainable living and a more sustainable economy you know throughout so it's that's the kind of simple easy you know that that mechanic will would be so effective if we could implement it yeah, just a, just a couple of points. One, um, I, I like the way you call it a carbon price rather than carbon carbon tax, because I think um, language is that actually, was the mistake I made yesterday. It was, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that you know how we, the framing of this and the language used is um, incredibly important. And I think also the, the the sort of the equity points you make, the societal equity points, are really really important as well, um, because ultimately that's the way we're going to get everyone on side um, to deliver against this. Um, you know, if the, the burden of delivering what we need to deliver to combat climate change is disproportionately affected, um, is, is disproportionately on um, sort of low income individuals or people mm. who can't afford it, then that's not a way to win hearts and minds and stuff. So, you know, we really do need to sort of make sure that that equity stuff is, 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 is right at the fore of the thinking on this. Yeah. So if you yeah. if you introduced a carbon price and you spent the money on discounts for heat pumps and electric cars, then you're just widening inequality. Yeah. If you introduce a carbon price and spend the money on a citizen's wage that funds uh, that funds reasonable energy consumption for everybody up to a certain mm -hmm. point, you know, then you've then you've used it to dramatically reduce inequality. So it's, there's kind of two there's two questions. One is what do you do to leave the, what are you doing to leave the fuel in the ground, and the, and the second question is how are you implementing it? You know, you could implement it in a way to make inequality better or worse. Um, but if we get it right, you know, it's so clear cut that there's a social improvement to be had at the same time. Yeah, yeah, and that's important. Yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it? So because UBI came up, so universal basic income came up as a as a topic yesterday as well. Um, I, th I think we need to close it there, don't we, Darren? I think we've, we do. Um, we're we're stretching the ears, uh, maybe not patience. No, no, but um, we're, this is going to be <laughs> on the long... train journeys. <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. It's a long old, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a long old train journey if you're listening to all of this one on your commute into work. Um, but we've got people stuck waiting on the train at Waterloo, just <laughs> desperately listening to the end of this. Uh, but Mike, thank you so much. You've been a fascinating, fascinating guest. Um, I can recommend all three of your books. So uh, How Bad Are Bananas, uh, The Burning Question, and There's No Planet B. Um, and yeah, you've been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. No, it's, well, it's been, a pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure, Mike. Um, you know, so insightful, learnt a lot, and um, such clear explanations of some of the challenges. Mm. Um, and I think, um, yeah, like, been very educational for me. Um, and hopefully it will be educational for our listeners as well. And there's a real call to action to the to the pensions industry behind some of this as well, um, which yeah, can only sure be a is. good yeah. thing. Um, so, so Nico, what events have we got coming up? Yeah, so a couple to mention. I, I, I touched on the defunct contribution uh, TCFD research launch that uh, we've got on Tuesday, the 28th of March, so a couple of days away. Um, I believe there are tickets still available. If you look at my LinkedIn postings, um, then there's a funny little video that I did in front of the JP Morgan building about that. <laughs> and there's an Eventbrite link there you can get. Um, but uh, yeah, so you better have listened to this 
in the next 48 hours or so. Um, <laughs> this will already be history. Um, but a bit further ahead, there's the DC Strategic Summit. That's the uh, DG Publishing event. That's the 15th of May. Um, so I believe both of us are on the platform, aren't we, Darren? So looking forward to that. Looking forward to that, indeed, indeed. Um, so um, that's all we've got time for. Uh, please do follow us. Um, we're on all good podcast platforms. Um, please do like, share, retweet, comment. Um, it's great to see the um, sort of traction that we've got around this podcast so far. Mm. And if you want to appear on the podcast, um, drop us a note, and we'll, um, you know, we'll, we'll do our best to get you on. Yeah, so the email address, as, as I'm sure you all remember, is vfmpensions at gmail.com. Uh, next week, we're actually keeping it secret who our guest is, and that's not at all because we don't know who it is yet. Really, Nico? Um, really, Nico? <laughs> <laughs> it's a top secret, very exciting guest, um, which might just be me and Darren. Um, and uh, yeah, so at some stage in the next 48 hours, Darren and I are going to actually record our response to the VFM consultation um, and then we'll publish that. I think it's in two weeks' time while Darren goes on holiday. Um, so, uh, yeah, Des, will, <laughs> Des Healy at, the, at DWP will get a copy of our oral response um, and we'll also type it up, won't we? And I think we're recording that um, at three o'clock on Saturday, Nico. And um, it's a good job there's an international football break this week. Um, otherwise, you wouldn't be able to do it then. <laughs> Well, we need to do it before your daughter and uh, the, the, the the madness of a sleepover. A big sleepover party right? so. on Saturday, yeah. Oh, gosh. Anyway, all to look so, forward until to. Until then. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much, Mike. Um, really, really appreciate your time. Um, and it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Thank you, Mike. Bye.